Chapter 21 Martin was a priest of the old school, which meant that for him, as for millions of men, women, and children across Germany, that God was alive. God was alive, and God was everywhere. Hell was as real as a car crash, heaven as possible as a good night's sleep. And not just God in the abstract, but God as a vital Christian. God was not a crutch for times of crisis. God was not vaguely present at marriages and funerals. God was not something you dressed up and gossiped on the church steps for. God was not what all religions basically worshipped. The Muslims and Jews might share the Old Testament, but anyone who denied the divinity of Christ was wrong, sinfully wrong, against God, a heathen, going to hell. Now, this kind of faith had its last holdout in certain countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Germany was one, France was not. England, Spain, and Italy were not. In Germany, God was the final arbiter. There was no room for doubt. Doubt was evil. It was the cloak of Satan before the Son of God. Germany was the hope of the Reformation, the spark in the mind of Martin Luther, which set Europe ablaze for a hundred years. Hundreds of thousands died in religious wars. And what of it? Saving souls was grim work. To save the soul at the expense of the body was a virtue. No moral man, no Christian, could stand by and watch his fellow men marching over the cliff of error into the fires of hell. Compassion demanded that error be corrected before it spread, before it ate like a cancer into the souls of the undecided. Martin had been called to the priesthood early when the fires of childish imagination were at their strongest. There was hatred, tension, and terror in his heart. He hated the world, hated sin, hated the devil. He walked the tightrope of having a pure soul trapped in a fleshy case of sin, in a body which could be played by the devil like an infernal organ. He was terrified of hell. There was love in his heart as well. He loved God. He prayed and wept. His soul soared high as his tears fell. He loved his fellow man and feared for the errors of their ways. Martin was not a humanist. He did not believe that there were many roads to salvation. God did not allow each man to pick his own path. There were endless paths to hell. There was but one path to heaven, the Protestant path. People were weak. That much was clear. People were weak, and the devil was patient and cunning. To set oneself against the devil was the highest calling of all. Martin had laid low all his doubts. Any which remained had long since left the light of day. He knew that he was capable of error, of misplaced sympathy and false compassion, his particular weakness was a desire to forgive where he knew that God would never forgive. This was true for women in particular. 
women who came to him broken in mind and heart, weeping over tainted desires, infidelities, jealousies, and thwarted hopes, his heart ached to wave their terrors and losses away. He always hesitated to cast their souls into the pit of despair, though he knew from his own experience that this pit was required for salvation. His own heart contracted agonizingly in the face of their pitiful requests for absolution, for the word from him, which would save the remainder of their days. The words always came to him, Sister, be forgiven and go in peace. They rose in his throat like sugar, but turned to bile on his tongue, for he knew that they were not his to give. Forgiveness was only God's to give. And the rules were clear. The rules were clear. Chapter 22 Tom did not fail his courses, even the Marxist ones, but his final marks were not enough to keep him in university. As is so often the case, the agony of waiting for bad news turned out to be far worse than actually getting it. He required a 92. He got a 66. It could be worse, he thought. I could be only a few away. And a worse thought followed, but he could not quite fix his mind on it because that would bring him perilously close to judging Reginald. I could have received the scholarship by arguing for things I did not believe in. That was the attitude taken by the brothers in order to preserve their fragile proximity. He has his ways and I have mine. A myth arose between them, which was that Tom was a sort of 19th century throwback, a classical liberal and absolutist of the oldest monocle-wearing Burma Road-marching imperialist kind. Reginald, on the other hand, was a modern egret, a stylish, self-referential and flexible water-walker of new ideas, an arrogant liquid, a master of multiplicity. It was odd how the brothers approached their differences. Their beliefs were elemental, opposite, yet laughed off as quirky, inconsequential. Their differences could never be far from their thoughts because they were so basic. However, they were also never explored in all their depth and complexity. Or was it complexity? It was as if Tom had taken up the habit of wearing plus fours and a deer stalker's cap, while Reginald preferred a banker's suit. A cute divergence of tastes, nothing more. But it was a nothing that they could not leave alone. Not now, not ever. Hart turned out to be a good companion during those last few days. Tom's differences with his elder brother were too deep to ever be truly comfortable, but things were different with Hart. Hart respected Tom and knew something about what motivated him. Hart had a kind of dancing, intense perceptiveness which propelled striking insights from his mouth, like a fish shooting water at an insect. They had their differences, of course, but they did not take them too seriously. In those days, all young men thought that they were only discussing ideas when they were, in fact, creating their entire futures down to the last details. 
Hart was genuinely heartbroken to find out that Tom was not going to be returning to All Souls. He demanded that Tom come and visit him over the summer, and often broke off conversations with welling eyes, murmuring that a chapter of his life was coming to an end. For his part, Tom knew that Hart was greedy for him, but also recognized that Hart was more than capable of paying for his own greed. Hart's ideas were strange, striking, beautiful, and often strangely irrefutable. One day, sitting in Hart's little room, they were talking about women, and Tom was quite startled at his friend's ideas. He knew that Hart was a virgin. Such things did not need confirmation. There is something sad about women, said Tom. Something mournful. I can't really understand. Of course, said Hart. But why? Well, imagine that you are a midget, three feet tall, and you live in a world designed by and for men all, five feet seven inches tall, through no fault of your own, and no matter what your capacities, you seem physically foolish even in your own eyes. Not quite made to fit the world. And no matter what happens, you will always be lesser. And then imagine that you know, even from birth, that you will be struck down by a debilitating physical condition which will render you helpless for a year at a time. And that, due to your physical weakness, you can be bullied and taken advantage of at any time. And you wonder why women are sad? Because they're not as physically strong, that seems. Hart interrupted him with a grin and a punch to the shoulder. Well, you are the original Anglo-Saxon ox, aren't you? What would you know about physical weakness? But me, I'm here because I was too weak for the mines. Tom nodded slowly. Hmm. Hmm. I say, hmm, indeed. But you agree that women should have the vote? Yes, and I also agree that young men should be allowed to drive cars without passing road tests as well. Hart threw up his hands. Hand out the licenses like candy, I say. Ah, you are being obscurantist. No, just snidely metaphorical. Look, men have had thousands of years of experience in the realm of tribal political life. Women haven't. Most of the important things in the world are not intuitive. We go around the sun. The selfish pursuit of individual wealth benefits society. Industrialization reduces poverty in a way that charity does not. Time slows down when you go really first. There are a lot of ideas which, because they are counterintuitive, took forever to root themselves in our minds. Women haven't been exposed to them. And your predictions, Nostradamus? Not hard, my broad-shouldered ox. Not hard at all. The movements are already in place. What do women want? Abstinence, help for the poor, the aged, the infirm, the unemployed, clean living and good charity. So they petitioned to ban alcohol, and lo and behold, we have old-age pensions, unemployment insurance, all the new-fangled notions of the welfare state. But... They won't work. No. Why? Because all the best answers are counterintuitive. You set up a group of people living out of the pockets of taxpayers, they'll always be agitating for more. And the more the state taxes and gives, the more will be drawn to get in on the action. There's no end to that process except bankruptcy and dictatorship. You sound very sure. Prognosticators are supposed to be humble. Hart laughed. But you see, I'm not talking about the future. I'm talking about the past. The past? Well, not our past. Well, the German past. Go on. Bismarck, 
1871, he did it all. National health insurance, social insurance, accident insurance, unemployment insurance, old age insurance, the whole lot. It takes about 60, 70 years to collapse, more if there's a war. So Germany is destined for dictatorship? Nonsense. You think so? Let me tell you what life is like in Germany at this moment in time on this day of our Lord, May 2nd, 1930. Their first republic, the Weimar Republic, is on its last legs. And why? Because state socialism is strangling the lifeblood of the country. The state robs the taxpayers blind, then uses the money to pay off the special interest groups, which were responsible for voting it in. The unions want protective legislation, big business wants loans and trade barriers, the farmers want subsidies, the school teachers want the closure of private schools and earlier retirement. The peasants hate foreign competition. The students want the government to pay for their education. The army wants rearmament. The old aristocracy want the monarchy re-established. The bureaucrats want job security and endless raises. Everyone wants something that someone else will have to pay for. And if you don't want to join in the feeding frenzy, then the mob will turn on you and rob you blind. And you know what else? What? murmured Tom. Something moved him about this more than just the politics of it all. It's like... Death by a thousand mosquitoes. Look, imagine you're a farmer. What do you do? Why, you lobby a friendly Reichstag for a 10,000 mark subsidy. Lovely, right? You sway the republic, you get 10,000 marks free and clear, which, assuming it's not 1923, is a good amount of money. But what if you're the taxpayer who foots the bill? Suppose you're Otto von Burgomeister, the local industrial hearty. If you oppose the farmer and win, you save maybe a couple of pfennig. It's a matter of imbalance. The incentive for the farmer to lobby for a subsidy is huge, and the incentive for the average taxpayer to oppose it is tiny. Not a good foundation for social peace and stability, I dare say. So look at what happens. Everyone lines up for the little vial of blood, and soon the social body, the economy, collapses. The moment of collapse comes as a great surprise, of course, because there is a mountain of debt which has staved off the disaster, but it comes, it comes. And then the worst thing in the world happens. And what is that, the worst thing in the world? Well, society has collapsed, the old society, the old way of doing things. And what were those things? The pillaging of the productive by the lazy. The corruption of democracy by the brutal redistribution of wealth by the government. State socialism is not freedom. Communism is the total ownership of property by the state. In Germany, as we speak, the state owns or controls more than half the property in the land. So it is already more communist than capitalist. And when all this corruption and money-grubbing comes crashing down, what do people say? Do they say, well, this state socialism, this creeping communism has not worked out very well, so let's take some of these powers away from the government? Do they say, let's repeal the tariffs and subsidies and special privileges for unions and big business and all the thousands of special interest groups? Do they lower taxation and privatize services? Heavens no. People almost never think that freedom is the solution for creeping tyranny. And imagine the fight they would face from all the entrenched bloodsuckers. What they will say in Germany is that freedom has been tried and failed and that capitalism does not work and democracy is anathema to the German soul. They will turn to dictatorship. And that, Tom, is the worst thing in the world. And do you know why? Yes, said Tom, who got it in a sudden rush. Why? Because, in a dictatorship, we would be murdered for having this wonderful conversation.
That conversation brought something home to Tom, something very important. He's not kidding, he thought, staring at Hart's pale face. And that phrase was crucial. It went to the very heart of things. Hart knew something about ideas and the expression of them that Tom did not. People aren't kidding. But he was afraid to ask Hart about it at that time because he felt that something terrible would occur if he did. So Tom did leave university and he went home for a few days and then he decided to take a room in London. He had no idea what he was going to do. It was important to get away from home. He packed lightly, took a day train into the great city, stored his belongings in a locker, took a bus downtown and began to wander. Everything he saw troubled him. The clumps of brown, stained men, not stained from work, but from dissolution and numb despair, jarred his sense of proportion. It was mid-afternoon. These men should not be wandering about or lurking in doorways. The guilty shuffle of the employed jarred him. He saw one woman walking out of a shop who, after passing one of the unemployed clumps, crossed herself and shook her head. The shops were bright and spanking clean, but there was something wrong. Everything was marked down. There aren't as many shoppers, thought Tom. I much prefer a world where a storekeeper can look at you askance and throw you out if you loiter. These men are too much like prostitutes with many mouths to feed. On every corner, too, it seemed the dolorous bell of the depressing Salvation Army tolled and a dark-suited, peak-capped man or woman, waist up, it was hard to tell, for more than ten paces, stood stiffly, ringing out the end of civilization. Although he was handsome, or perhaps because of it, Tom tried to avoid judging other people on their looks, but the thought came to him nonetheless. I have never seen an attractive person in a Sally Ann uniform. Once, as a young teen, wandering into a Salvation Army hall by mistake, he had watched as a couple publicly dedicated their wailing newborn baby to the cause. Oh, cry, little one. There was something missing from the streets of London, and it took Tom quite some time to realize what it was. The old were almost nowhere to be seen. There were some old workers, but... And then he realized that the market crash had probably destroyed the retirement savings of many a lifelong worker. So where have they gone? It was a chilling thought, and Tom contented himself a little guiltily with thinking of a friendly family far in the country, or that they just stayed at home afraid of the unemployed. And there were fewer babies. That was the other thing. Toddlers, sure, toddlers by the score, but they could all walk or looked a bit too big for their strollers, but no babies. This, combined with the absence of the elderly, seemed rather brutally Darwinian. Some predator has been at work, and the helpless are no more. Tom loved libraries and went into one. Here was something nice, something which spoke well of the symmetry between learning and compassion. There was a tray of jam butties in the entranceway and pitchers of water and a hand-scrawled sign pointing to the toilets downstairs. 
Men lounged unmolested to guard only chastised those who tried to stuff their pockets. Tom was surprised that this gentle remonstrance worked every time, often producing a guilty grin and a replacing of the food. This reminded him of something that happened when he was about eight. He was riding his bicycle on the pavement, weaving in and out of people, when a curly-haired man of about twenty stopped him. Tom had thrust out his lower lip, expecting a clip on the ear, but the man just leaned down and said softly, "'You know, if you ride your bicycle on the sidewalk, it's quite likely that you will hit someone who is not quick.'" An elemental compliance, surprising to a boy who fancied himself a rebel, arose in Tom that day. He never rode on the pavement again, and forever remembered the power of a soft tone. After a light supper, Tom picked up a newspaper, averting his eyes from the grim news on the front page, Banker kills self, and scanned the adverts for rooms. He went to a few before settling on one in the back of a house with a little garden. It was a nice room, the paint was new and the closet fairly spacious. It had one window which opened onto a view of the Thames, and a slovenly landlady which seemed sort of inescapable. The next morning... It was bright and clear. Tom lay in his bed, his arms clasped behind his head, feeling... Well, this is odd, he thought. I don't feel much of anything. He felt empty, but not unhappy. Poised, as it were, like an endlessly patient predator. My future will not be walking through that door, not any time soon. Already he felt that university was thousands of miles away. They were already speaking in other tongues there. The thought, what will become of me, held no terrors. What shall I do with my day, he wondered. Anything I please. I have to go to the bank to arrange for the transfer of my account from home. I have the five hundred pounds a year, the rent here is minimal. I need few. I can wait indefinitely for what will become of me. That prospect gave him a deep thrill of pleasure. It was only now that he realized what a load he had been carrying in university. It is Reginald's round there. I never would have found a proper place. The idea of getting a degree now seemed incomprehensible to get a degree, to become a professor or a civil servant, to build capital, find a home, breed a family. What nonsense! Tom smiled. It wasn't that these ideas were bad in and of themselves. They were just for others, for those without... Well, what? Without what? It seemed like a very deep instinct which gave him peace of mind as he lay there in the brightening day. He settled on a tautology, which was... Well, those without whatever gives me peace of mind lying here with no plan. Tom lay and let his thoughts wander for almost an hour, then decided to get something to eat. He rose, bathed, shaved, dressed, and went down into the street. He felt like an anthropologist, noting how each city dweller earned their bread. Everyone had a story and he wandered the streets, imagining the personal histories of each odd person he saw. That man has no friends, and is in love with his dog. That woman has the heart of a hero, but is too busy to notice it. 
That old man saw terrible sufferings in the Crimea and has never recovered. That man was the most agile man in his unit at rugby and in the trenches and has only lost a leg because he dodged the worst of the incoming shell. That girl is being taken out by a detested uncle she angles away from his tight hand. Tom laughed at himself. He wanted to stop everyone he thought about and see if he was right. To create the encyclopedia of everyone because each life is a thousand worlds. He took a seat at an outdoor cafe, ordered a tea, and gazed surreptitiously at those around him. What should happen now is that I should be reading a newspaper at brunch and a shifty-eyed young man will ask for the sports section because shifty-eyed men always want the sports section. He will ask me if I am new in town and befriend me and lead me step by step into the underworld and I shall learn all the dark ways of my soul. Or a woman in trouble will attach herself to me with desperate and flirty ways and will ask me to do some awful deed to free her from a man. Or a nun will notice that I have no nimbus of God around me and will inquire in soft tones about the state of my soul and we shall war over the invisible for many days. Or a child shall come and tell me that there is a fight, and lead me to a place where I will be robbed. Tom put down his tea, looking at the people around him. Or, more likely, everyone will go about their business and barely give me a second glance. The dramas of the world so rarely drop bombs on innocent bystanders. Chapter 23 the time that Tom spent in that little back room was the sweetest that he had ever spent in his life. He knew that this was the case. He even knew that he would gaze back later in his life and always remember the time that he spent lying and reading or walking and thinking or eating and singing. He spent two years in that room. Something in university had awakened him, something which put Catherine at one end of the pole, and the modern world at the other. He grew to love knowledge and dreamed of the 19th century as a place he would have been truly at home. He grew misty-eyed over stories of heroism, of righteous war and stern peace treaties. The word honor became very important. And he began to love the empire. This was most odd and most against the grain of his times. He loved what England had done for the world. He loved the peace that ruled a quarter of the globe. He loved reading about the downfall of cruel native despots and their replacement with inflexible, friendly, authoritarian British rule. Of course, he had to go back pretty far to find his love of the empire. For all modern commentators, it was nothing but brute colonialism, but there was something about the 19th century which moved him beyond words. The British had a mission, a crusade, one might almost say, if the word had not been so corrupted by Christianity, and that was to bring civility to the world. The British encountered other countries while trading and grew quickly sick of the depravity of foreign rulers. They grew sick of bribing and waiting and having to perform every species of senseless abasement. But most of all, they were horrified at the treatment of the helpless in these countries. India, with its caste system, 
bride burning, endless raping of women, and constant molestation of children. It was one thing to want spices, it was quite another to hand over gold to a merchant whose wife flinched when he raised his hand. The Western tradition of defense of the helpless, which arose after the bloody wars of the Reformation, was something truly to be proud of. The idea of equality of law, of the separation of church and state, of rights for women, all the most noble virtues of the Western tradition, the absence of these could not be ignored. The 19th century was the last time that, for England at least, morals stood above mankind. The idea of burning a woman alive because her husband had died, now considered a valid quirk of a foreign culture, could not be stomached by any who encountered it. It was barbaric, primitive, ghastly, and evil. None could stand by and watch it happen. It was not just a Christian thought, but something deeper, more dignified. It was an affront to all that was good and noble and true in human nature. It was subhuman. It had to be stopped. But there was no common ground for stopping it. Tom encountered one idea which seemed so foreign that he had to read it over a number of times before it made any kind of sense. In the Sikh culture in India, the actions of a woman reflected on the honor of the family as a whole. Thus, if a woman wanted to marry a man of a lower caste, she could be legally killed in order to protect the family honor. Tom let his head sink deep into his pillow after reading about that. Where does one begin negotiating about that? How does one go into a village and say that this ghastly practice is no more? Ah, it is a matter of honor. The white man has no idea. The white man lets his women run wild. Women are naturally dishonest, willful, disobedient. And how could we tell them otherwise? Shall we tell them that women are equal to men? Preposterous! Can a woman hunt a boar? The scent of her menstruation would tip the animal off. Can a woman push a plow? Too weak. Can a woman wield a sword? No. Women are dependent on men, thus men own them. Can you point to one woman here who is equal to a man? And of course, no one could. For women to be equal to men, strength has to be removed from the equation. That means no farming, no hunting, no wars close by. India has been in a state of civil war for a millennia, a thousand princes vying for a hundred kingdoms. How could women ever be thought of as equal to men when they are prizes of war? It is like saying that livestock should be allowed to vote. So for women to be equal, we would have to force India to industrialize and then introduce the arts, education, remove strength from the equation. Women can write, think, speak, reason and argue as well as a man, but they cannot push a plow. But how does one industrialize a country? Enforce property rights. But you have upper castes which have existed for a thousand years. Are they going to give up their rights? The lower castes have to sweep the floor behind them as they leave a room, so the upper castes do not have to mingle even their footprints with these vermin. Are they going to defend their right to property? Of course not. So what is one to do? Put all the upper castes in jail without due process? You have to have a jury system, which will never convict them. And all the educated people are in the upper castes. They will never defend the lower ones. It was all so impossible. And starting after the Great War, a new thread moved through the literature, which was that India was the great mystery, an age-old continent with savage foreign rituals and unfathomable social complexity. It was like Africa, the dark continent, a riddle. 
that the small-minded white man could never penetrate. It was foreign and should not be meddled with. To Tom's mind, this was very strange. What is mysterious about oppression? Every myth exists to grant power to some group. The caste system, with its religious underpinnings, just propped up the dominant social group. Who cares if their dances are very difficult to learn? It's like saying that the mafia is an impenetrable mystery because their secret handshakes are very complicated. Nonsense. Criminals, that's all. And after the great mystery came its natural result, national self-determination. Tom could never quite fix his mind on this concept. Basically, it seemed to be something like this. The majority should be able to do whatever it likes to its minorities. Or, no matter what you want to do, if you have enough people behind you, it's good. It seemed very primitive. It had originated after the Great War and was the foundation of the League of Nations. One of the great questions of history is, what is a community? Now, for the 19th century and for Tom, a community was defined by voluntarism. It was a community if you joined it of your own free will. It was a valid government if you submitted to it because its ethics coincided with your own. But that didn't really work after the Great War because voluntarism had largely gone the way of the dodo. Conscription was introduced in 1915 for the first time in the history of the British Empire. Income tax was introduced in 1917 as a temporary measure that seemed destined to measure its temporary nature in geological time. The government swallowed massive sections of the economy and people's lives piecemeal without even a burp. The welfare state was underway. Are we then going to champion voluntarism, given that we have already established that using force is a valid way of achieving something good? Taxes go to the poor, whether you like it or not. Stand back from your wallet. We will take what we want and do what is best. So the concept of voluntarism, so central to the foundation of the United States and in the free market debates of the 19th century, had been destroyed by German militarism. What, then, was the justification for the existence and protection of the nation-state after the Great War? Well, it was a geographical area containing an ethnic or cultural majority. What made it moral? Well, that was a tricky question. Basically, it was moral because it expressed the will of the majority. And what if the majority decided to do something immoral? Theoretical. Next question, please. And the strangest thing about the end of the Great War was that national self-determination was considered the moral basis for the existence of states and then was completely ignored by the Allies in the framing of the Treaty of Versailles. Tom read about this with a growing sense of foreboding as if he were not reading about the past at all. In his mind something began to formulate it was of central importance, and it was something, something like, well, if they have an idea about what justifies a nation's state, but they find that they cannot put this idea into practice, then they should have stopped and looked at the idea again. I mean, you can't just have an idea about nations and then say, well, now that we are dealing with the creation of nations, we have to abandon that idea. You say instead, well, 
it would seem that our idea is not helping very much, so let's put our actions on hold until we have a bit more clarity about what we're doing. Tom was not naive. Of course, that almost never happens. Mankind goes on and on saying, of course sand is the best material for building houses, then uses bricks anyway. Of course, though, if you dream of sand but build with bricks, you are still building on sand, and so nothing will stand. Nothing will stand. Tom could not really conceive of that. What would that mean? War could no longer be thought of in rational, calculating, or practical terms. Even the slaughter of the Great War was as nothing to what was coming. It is a great illusion of mankind that technology will save society from moral confusion. The invention of the long-range bomber was supposed to put an end to war. It was widely estimated that half a million deaths could be expected from the first night of full-scale bombing of a city. And there was no defense, no defense at all. Anti-aircraft guns might get one bomber in a thousand. Fighter planes were useless in the dark. Small bombers would come first, dropping in sentries, which would be visible up to 20,000 feet. Then the masses of bombers would come, their target clearly visible in the flames below. There was no way to stop them. All experts were unanimous. The bomber will always get through. So why did they take so little care over Versailles? wondered Tom. It was most odd. The British and French had this vision of what a country was and then seemed to ignore it completely. It was partly a question of plebiscites. The British and French approached various nationalities around Germany and said, do you want to be part of Germany or your own country? But they only did that when they were sure that the vote would go against Germany. There were no plebiscites in Alsace-Lorraine or in most of the lands given to Poland. And Austria, well, that was the most cynical of all. The Allies knew that Austria desperately wanted to reunite with Germany. The Poles were clear about that. But in the Versailles Treaty, such a union was expressly forbidden. Most odd. Why spend all that time coming up with a theory about national self-determination and then ignore it completely? But all these dangers, it seemed, paled next to Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was a monstrous mongrel. Less than half its population were Czechs. The Slovaks were a significant majority. There were three million Germans in Czechoslovakia, mostly in the Sudetenland in the West, sharing a border with Germany who desperately wanted to go home. So something was wrong with the theory, but the theory was neither questioned nor applied, thought Tom, lying back on his bed. This is important, but I am sleepy. Tom had a bad habit of seducing himself into a nap by sagging studying. Well, it would be bad if he was not studying solely for his own pleasure. It was quite a subtle progression. First, he would be sitting upright at his little desk, his back erect, taking notes and marking pages. Then his back would sag. Then he would put his feet up. Then his lower back would get sore. Then he would sit up on his bed. Then he would lie down and read, propping his head on his arm. Then hmm, he would close his eyes for a moment just to reflect on what he'd read. This last phase usually lasted no more than two minutes. 
This process, which once took over an hour, he had now gotten down to under fifteen minutes. Although he grew to love knowledge more and more, it could not be said that his learning curve about his own habits was very high. He was still surprised when he woke up after a good study nap. I guess I fell asleep. Naps were always dangerous for Tom. Well, if not dangerous, at least risky. First, they tended to be long, at least 90 minutes. Second, they made it impossible for him to go to sleep before 3 a.m. And third, they were not always refreshing. After a nap, he often felt that his well-oiled brain had been sucked out by gypsies, sold on the black market, and replaced with rather damp and moldy wool. Occasionally he would nap well, and these occurrences would stay with him, enough to keep his doubtful faith in the restorative powers of napping. The fact that this only happened about once out of ten times did not alter this math. After all, was not his strong suit. Also, he was a great fan of Winston Churchill. Churchill was a great napper and usually spent the hours from three to five in peaceful slumber. Tom took some comfort in this because it is always wise to imitate an idol while young. Tom's affection and, frankly, his pining for the 19th century found great root in Churchill, who was a 19th century man to his very bones. He loved reading Churchill's speeches and greatly admired Winston's courage when he broke with the Conservative Party over the party's desire to grant self-rule to India. This was one of those issues which opens wide, hissing veins of lava over the contradictory ideas which so often undermine great societies. The granting of self-rule to India coincided completely with the new respect for the idea of national self-determination. The reasoning was fairly simple. If self-determination was the great definition of a nation, then ruling over India was wrong. They should run their own house, as every nation should. The British should never have been there in the first place. However, there was something which was never quite discussed, except where Churchill was concerned, which was, were the Indians capable of running their own country? This was the most heretical idea, smacking of much racism and the unconscious, patronizing colonial attitude so endemic to the thinking of the white man. However, the fact that England was, for instance, not actively considering invading America and undoing the revolution was important. England was quite content to let America run itself because America was demonstrably quite capable of running itself. And of course, it could be argued that after having come to the rescue of free Europe in 1917, America was actually better at running itself than Europe was at running itself. But Marxism had taken hold too deeply. No young intellectual could argue that England took over the management of India because the Indians were manifestly incapable of running their own country in any moral manner. No, there was no virtue in human motivation. Marx had proven that. Well, except for the Marxists, of course, whose motives were pure. The English may have thought that they were trying to do good in India and protect the lower castes, women and children from rape, murder and exploitation, but that wasn't the case. They were actually trying to expand their markets and keep control of the trade routes. Why then did they impose the rule of law in India and spend millions of pounds and hundreds of British lives to protect the minorities and keep the women off the funeral pyres? There was probably some Marxist explanation, but it was doubtless too tortured even for the party faithful to follow, though, doubtless, the dialectic was involved. So there was no moral reason for the British to be there, and national self-determination was the only valid justification for a state. Well and good, so the British must 
go. And if the Indians return to caste warfare, Muslim and Hindu massacres, the persecution of the Pakistanis, the genital mutilation of children, and endless barbecuing of brides, well, said the new thinkers, if that's what they really want, then who are we to interfere? The question of what the lower caste and women might want went unanswered. Brute majority rule, as in ancient Greece, would do. Those who found it a tragedy that Athens could vote to murder Socrates found little difficulty in advocating such majority rule, unbounded by human rights, for other countries far from home. These were the thoughts going through Tom's mind early in the year 1932. Reginald's mind, on the other hand, was rather less full of thoughts than it was of plans. <laughs> 